Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Have you had to shift your life around these past few months? Learn new skills? Painter Rachel Dennison says she's discovered how to keep her business alive by going online. And it has kept me motivated to keep working and keep painting because otherwise, right now, with no shows to look forward to, it would be really easy to get into the what's the point mindset. Today's show is all about highlighting the brilliance and creativity of Appalachian artists. Folks like ceramic artist Eric Pardue. Find something to do that brings you some peace. You know, and if your work's not doing it, find, you know, find something to try to get back into that, you know, where you were before this. Or maybe even beyond where you were before this. You know, something maybe we came through this and will come out even better. And we meet Virginia-based artist Mark Klein, who creates fiberglass dinosaurs for a wacky time warp tourist destination called Dinosaur Kingdom. What's true and what's not here at Dinosaur Kingdom? To me, it's all true. This is a, hey, we're here, aren't we? We're walking through it. People say, are dinosaurs real? I say, they are to me, kid. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Appalachia has always been a place that produces art. We tell stories and write poetry. We sculpt figures and housewares out of clay. We make music out of our experiences. Appalachians make art even during hard times. And now's one of those hard times to say the least. So how are Appalachian artists and their art changed by it? Today on Inside Appalachia, we check in with potters, painters, writers, and action figure makers to see how they're faring during and in spite of the coronavirus pandemic. In a few minutes, we'll hear from artists about how they're adapting their businesses now that shows and art fairs are on hold. But first, we're going to check back in with an artist named Robert Villanova. Last year, we learned how he salvages metal at flea markets in Ohio for his colorful pieces. Maybe some of this stuff carries uh, a little bit of the history or the spirit of the people that used it or worked with it or made it. In amongst the big story of the main piece of work, these little stories, these little bits and pieces of metal and found objects, they're coming through. That was Robert Villanova back in 2019. Since then, a lot has happened. Robert has COVID-19 and is still in recovery. He spoke with our Folkways reporter, Caitlin Tan, about his experience. Robert, how are you? And and walk me through what these past couple weeks have been like. Well, right now, of course, my, my wife and I are both dealing with this. We're on two different levels, but we're both getting through it. But for, <coughs> excuse me, once while I might cough. This started for me on the morning of the 25th of July and where I woke up with some nausea, diarrhea, and overall body soreness. And that was the beginning. You know, over those days, what was happening to my body was slowly changing because now we were bringing in uh, elevated body temperatures. I was, I lost my sense of taste, my my ability to smell was extremely, extremely weak. And um, there was a lot of confusion. I was, uh, for four days, I was going through 
hallucinations in the evening. Really? And yeah, but when you're trying to sleep, this thing is playing hell with you. Right. It was horrific. So then, so were you hospitalized? We went in twice. The first time, just for a day, and then came home. But a couple of days later, she had to take me back in the ER, and then they admitted me for a couple of nights because we couldn't get my body temperature down, and that was a big deal. That, and we couldn't get my blood oxygen level up high enough to maintain me. So since you've been back home, mm-hmm. are things getting better? I mean, or, or are they just staying the same? No, they're they're improving, but they're so tiny. Uh, I I can only look at it looking at the day before. So like today, what what are you going to do today to pass the time? Well, t- today. Um, there won't be a whole lot. When I, yesterday is the first time I went in a studio for about 90 minutes. It was the first time in maybe almost two weeks. It, it, it was exhausting, but it was helping me with my sanity because, uh, it's been hard to concentrate more than 15, 20 minutes on something. And so uh, you kind of lose your train of thought. So today I'm going to try another one hour to 90 minute segment if I have the stamina for it. Now, Robert, you've been pretty vocal on, on Instagram. And, and let me just read this one paragraph you wrote. You said... I know that there are a lot of people who believe this whole pandemic is a hoax, some scheme created to bring down the president. Many others believe mask wearing requirements are somehow stomping on their rights as a free American. I don't know how to debate these issues. I don't even understand the concept. We are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I mean, that must kind of hit home now after everything you've gone through. I've, I've had a hard time understanding now there could be these choices being made by humans that tend to be politically based. It's just that this is science and health and, and people's lives. And and that kind of blow my mind. So when this thing actually hit me, I go, Holy crap, you know, this stuff doesn't care who or what you are, but people, I don't understand it. As someone who has been through one of the more extreme versions of COVID, I mean, and and you're still Mm -hmm. recovering, what would you say to someone who is doubting the reality of COVID? What's unfortunately, I think, going to convince somebody who has not been convinced is that either they wake up with this or a family member wakes up with this. Because you're, you're, I kid you not, you're in for the fight of your life. And uh, there's a period where you just want to get through it. And you can't believe it. You can't. You, uh, just a minute. 
You can't believe that there's something that can get inside of you. It has so many different facets. And it's not, it's not the damn flu. It goes way beyond that. And, and it can bring with it so many things. This thing, this thing is so for real. It really is. Robert, thank you so much for sharing. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks. We're happy to report that Robert is still recovering from COVID-19, and he says he's been trying to spend a few hours each day making work in a studio. Robert mentioned that setting aside time to make art has helped him emotionally as he recovers physically. Maintaining some level of our normal habits is something most of us can probably relate to, whether or not we're professional artists. Staying productive helps artists survive financially, too. Next, we'll hear from artists talk about how they're making art and adapting to a changing marketplace. Hi, this is Hannah Linhart, and I am a ceramic artist. My business is called Hannah's Clay Creations, and I am based out of Fairmont, West Virginia. So COVID has impacted my work in a few ways. I was very involved in the craft show circuit and was planning to do many shows this season. But as of right now, it looks like I won't be doing any shows in 2020. So that has been a huge bummer. My name is Lambrose Claris. I'm a potter. I'm in Short Creek, West Virginia. I mostly do uh, kitchen type pottery and uh, I mostly wholesale. My business has been pretty cyclical for a long time. So this pandemic has, uh, has def- definitely affected me. Hello, my name is Rachel Dennison. I am a painter and sculptor, and I live in Smithfield, West Virginia. That's in Wetzel County. Once COVID hit and I wasn't able to do in-person sales anymore, um, I refocused back on my painting because paintings are much safer to ship. My name is Eric Pardue. I guess you would say I'm a ceramic artist or a potter, and uh, I live in Milton, West Virginia. Uh, that's that's one of the biggest things about you know this the social distancing and having to retract is that I, I make my work pretty much isolated. But I also don't sell in art fairs or direct sales. Uh, I deal with galleries. My work has just been going out to them normally, and I haven't had to adjust my selling. But I've seen on their end they've had to. People aren't coming to the galleries in the numbers that they are, so they're doing so much more online. My name's Noelle Horsfield. With my husband, I own Full Circle Gifts and Goods in Huntington, West Virginia, and I'm a ceramic artist. We were very, like, very focused on, you know, working with the the local community and very much an in-person shop. So you know, when, when COVID hit, we knew that, that we needed to grow our online presence, but we just hadn't put the emphasis or the work into it that we needed to do. And when everything turned to, well, this is the only way to make the the business work, we just poured all of our energy into that. The majority of my sales usually came from artisan shows or brick and mortar shops. I've had to shift more to online recently and it's been a little bit challenging because of shipping and packaging is always a nightmare. 
and I feel like it's hard to properly showcase an item just through photography alone, but I feel like that I've just been learning a lot as time goes on. I'm not a super tech savvy person, so I shied away from all of that and always put it off and you know one day one day I'll do a web page and since COVID hit I finally sat down and did that and I'm glad that I did because I have gotten quite a few sales from it and it has kept me motivated to keep working and keep painting because otherwise right now with no shows to look forward to it would be really easy to get into the what's the point mindset. I don't uh, support myself with my work so um, you know it's not like there's there are so many sales happening but the amount of sales that have happened have have remained steady or even ticked up a little bit. I know social media interest has even been a little higher like Instagram. It's just like I, I think people are spending so much time you know inside and viewing these shows online. I'm actually pleasantly surprised that I'm actually selling it all, you know. Most of my vendors is actually opening up and selling stuff. In fact, I delivered some pottery today. When it first started, I thought, oh my God, I think I'm out of business. You know, no one's going to want to buy pottery. So people are, are buying, but, um, but not in the quantity that, that it was. I actually have a lot more time to paint right now because I'm not working. Usually I would have just the summer off. I'm a substitute teacher. So in, in that way, it's given me more time to focus on my painting because you know, you, there's just not much else to do right now besides paint. You know, there's only so many times you can clean your house. At first, it felt like kind of a, a stretch and a struggle to get back to, to want to make anything. Um, I, I, I think because it just, I don't know, it just felt like uh, my mind was in a, a thousand different places and none of them were where I, it needed to be in order to, to really want to make things. Um, <laughs> so that, that has been a little bit of a struggle. Find something to do that brings you some peace, you know, and if your work's not doing it, find, you know, find something to try to get back into that, you know, where you were before this, or maybe even beyond where you were before this, you know, something maybe we came through this and we'll come out even better. I hope we can just get back to normal. I, I you know, one, one thing that helps is we hand out these lunches at my other job every day. You know, we, the school system has been doing that. And something about doing that has really even kind of fed into my work. Just the positivity of feeling like even that little piece of helping somebody. It's enough positivity to not bring this, this negative cloud back home to work, you know, in the studio. Thanks to artists Eric Pardue, Noel Horsfield, Rachel Dennison, Lambro Seclaris, and Hannah Linhart for talking about how you're finding peace and staying creative. Today we're highlighting some of Appalachia's most creative people. And while we can't get together to celebrate art, one thing we can do is hit the road.
Maybe the coronavirus pandemic will inspire a revival of roadside tourist destinations. While Red Wing, Minnesota has the world's largest boot and High Point, North Carolina has the world's largest chest of drawers, Natural Bridge, Virginia, well, it has Civil War soldiers interacting with dinosaurs. Artist Mark Klein has made an entire tourist destination that's designed to make you scream with fear and laugh out loud. I've never visited the world he's created in southwest Virginia, but after hearing our next story, I just might have to make the trip. Inside Appalachia, Folk Rays reporter Mason Adams has more. Where are you folks from? from Chatham, Virginia. Chatham, Virginia. Oh, Chatham, yeah. Dinosaurs love people from Chatham, Virginia. <laughs> yeah, they have that special southern taste. To it. I I it's Friday afternoon, an hour and a half before closing, and Mark Klein greets a family fresh out of their car. I'm, I'm the creator of the park, so... Well, maybe I shouldn't have told you that. I should have waited to, you, to see if you liked it or not. Yeah. <laughs> All right, have fun. <laughs> Seriously, try not to get eaten. <laughs> Mark's dressed in jeans, a white t-shirt, and white fedora. I've met him in the parking lot of Dinosaur Kingdom 2, a roadside attraction across the street from the Natural Bridge Zoo on US Route 11. If you notice, when you're coming to the parking lot, uh, I've designed this so that your adventure begins here. And what you're seeing is the train depot and the the, uh, Yankee up there fighting the dinosaur on the train car. Dinosaur Kingdom evolved out of one of Mark's previous attractions, the Haunted Monster Museum. He populated a one-acre space with dinosaurs fighting Civil War soldiers to entertain folks waiting in line for the Monster Museum. Of course, we had a major fire in 2012. The Haunted Monster Museum burned down, but we had all these dinosaurs that survived out in the woods. Mark eventually got a 16-acre piece of land across from the Natural Bridge Zoo, where he built Dinosaur Kingdom 2. He says his interest in the Civil War dates back to a series of events, starting in 1969 with Hurricane Camille, which caused severe flooding in the Virginia mountains where Mark's family lived. My mom gathered me and my brothers up and headed up, headed up to Gettysburg, you know, to get us away from the danger. We went up there, and my mom took us to all the, the museums, all the Gettysburg museums. I saw the, the wax museums and the little miniature museums, and I was just totally fascinated with that. Mark figured... Everyone loves dinosaurs, and he's located just south of Lexington, Virginia. Uh, We're just down the road from where Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson lived, so we figured that uh, 60% of the the battles of of the Civil War took place here in Virginia, so we sort of married up the two uh, fact with fantasy, and it seems to be pretty popular. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 acts as a funhouse mirror for that history, squeezing it into an absurdist revisioning where Union and Confederate soldiers interact with dinosaurs in bizarre scenes. In one, President Abraham Lincoln sits atop a building as a flying dinosaur makes off with his speech. And you can see that the bird is actually chewing up the Gettysburg Address. Now you know why the Gettysburg Address was so short, because the Pteranodon ate most of it. Elsewhere, a steampunk Stonewall Jackson with a trench coat and telescoping arm battles a Spinosaurus. The park culminates with a big T-Rex that swoops down on an outhouse at the very end. All right, head, head up. All right, all right, behave yourself, behave yourself. Yeah. And the breath in that thing. Here's the thing, by design, you want to have people as they exit. 
they saw this T-Rex coming at them in the Johnny house. So about the time they're laughing, talking about it, and they're coming through right here, through this gate. As they exit, the people that are standing on that porch getting ready to buy their tickets are seeing people laughing and enjoying themselves. Now, if those people on the porch are sort of on the fence or deciding whether or not to buy those tickets, they see these people coming out and they just had a great time. And sometimes that pushes it over. Klein occasionally hears from customers and critics upset about his use of Civil War imagery at Dinosaur Kingdom 2. His response is as irreverent as the park itself. If anybody can make an issue out of cartoon soldiers fighting dinosaurs with slime monsters everywhere, I said, bring it on. I want to hear this. This, is, this park is ridiculous. It's meant to be ridiculous, but isn't, isn't that what war is? War is ridiculous. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 is a throwback to the old roadside attractions of the mid-20th century, when Americans explored the country in their automobiles. Businesses tried to entice them off the road and to spend a few dollars. This is an old-time tourist attraction um, that have sort of become extinct in the 70s. Now there's a whole new generation of kids discovering this because this is a brand new experience for them. This is something that just doesn't exist anymore, but yet here it is. Mark Klein's something of a throwback himself. People call him the Barnum of the Blue Ridge, and he's definitely got the gift of gab. Mark grew up in Waynesboro, Virginia, near the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains, loving comics, cartoons, and monster movies. He pursued those interests through art and made a major leap when he learned about fiberglass sculpting through a job at Red Mill Manufacturing, which made him figurines of animals and people. The guy showed me how to work with resin, and uh, here I've been working with paper mache before, and I thought, well, I can make things more exterior with this. And he said, you sure can, Mark. Here's a five-gallon bucket. Go home and play with it. And he did. Mark started creating stuff. To build an original piece, I'll scale it out. Then I'll use foam, cover the, you know, cut out a piece out of foam to the size I want, and then I'll essentially coat that with fiberglass. And if I like that design, I'll make a mold of it so I can make duplicates. After I make the original piece, I can just duplicate it over and over and over and over. Mark Klein's work falls into that American tradition of building giant sculptures to lure a motorist off the highway. Think of the cherubic statues and overalls at big boy restaurants or the muffler men and Paul Bunyans that once guarded auto shops and roadside attractions of all sorts. Mark's carried on that tradition through contracts for clients around the country and his attractions in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Mark landed there in 1982. He set up Enchanted Studios as a workshop for making his fiberglass sculptures for one attraction after another. The first and second dinosaur kingdoms, the haunted monster museum, Foamhenge. But it's not been without costs. I went through a depression um, that I had to overcome, went through a divorce. Uh, um, uh, a first wife that she left me because she said the, the romance of poverty had worn off and you know I was struggling and I kept saying, you know, hey, I'm gonna make this happen, I'm gonna make this happen. And uh, became very, very close to bankruptcy, um, had two major fires. Um, so there were a lot of things that I had to, to rise above but I, I kept on and on and on and on. Mark says that even when he had nowhere else to go, he could turn to his art. It let him escape to a different place for a while. Today, he's making a go of it. Dinosaur Kingdom 2 is going strong, even during the pandemic. On the day I visited, a surge of a traffic arrived in the late afternoon. Mostly 20-somethings, a couple of families, all excited to explore this weird attraction in Natural Bridge. 
But Mark's been doing this for 40 years. He's almost 60 now, and he's starting to think about the park's future. And that's where the Virginia Folklife Program comes in. My name is Pat Jarrett. I am a, a digital media coordinator for the Virginia Folklife Program at Virginia Humanities. Pat discovered Dinosaur Kingdom through his previous job at a newspaper in Stanton, Virginia, just north of Natural Bridge. I, I love Dinosaur Kingdom, too. It's brilliant. It's full of whimsy and optical illusions and just, it's like being inside Mark Klein's brain, which is thrilling and uh, a little bit confusing. <laughs> he got to know Mark well enough to have conversations about the future of the park. He said to me one time something that really stuck with me. He said, I'm worried that if when I die, people are going to come into this yard and they're going to throw away all these molds because they don't know what this is or how to work it. And it's... It's just going to be lost. And that is kind of the reason we have the apprenticeship program, is so that this knowledge can be passed down and continued. The apprenticeship program pairs masters in a folk craft with a student so that traditions can be passed on to future generations. The program doesn't usually play a matchmaker, but in Mark's case, Pat had someone in mind. I happened to know Brentley from um, the music community. And I knew that he was working on small-scale, short-run action figures. And it just clicked in my head he, he, that these guys could probably work together. Brentley Hilliard plays in a metal band. He also makes his own short-run action figures. Mark taught Brentley how to go from small-scale to large-scale sculpture and molding. He also passed along a couple of his clients to Brentley, like a children's museum in Connecticut that wanted fairy figures. Brentley has taken the business and lessons that Mark gave him and combined them with his woodworking and action figures to make a living from his art. Here's Brentley. I definitely learned a ton about mold making and materials that I hadn't worked with before. Like I had never worked with epoxy sculpt, which is a modeling compound that cures to almost like like cement. And I had never messed with that. And I sculpted the head for a uh, flying monkey for a Wizard of Oz putt-putt course that he was working for. Mark still lives and breathes sculpture and molding, especially for Dinosaur Kingdom 2, where he's always planning something new, whether that's an interactive water fight with Bigfoot, a Triceratops bullfight, or a whole new dungeon full of sculpted fiberglass creations. Look, what's true and what's not here at Dinosaur Kingdom? <laughs> you think it's all true? <laughs> This is a, hey, we're here, aren't we? We're walking through it. People say, are dinosaurs real? I say, they are to me, kid. <laughs> For Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Are you getting some good stuff? Up next, a mother discovers that toxic chemicals have been found in the water surrounding her family's home. We've got Ann Pancake reading from her award-winning novel, Strange As This Weather Has Been. But nothing could cover that day in August. Corey and Tommy brought back two of those big margarine tubs full of rotting crawdads. That's coming up in just a minute. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Jessica Lilly. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. There's a long tradition of storytelling in Appalachia, and not all of those stories are preposterous scenarios like dinosaurs taking on Civil War soldiers, like the story we heard earlier. We also tell stories through music and writing. There's a new book out that showcases dozens of Appalachian writers. It's called Writing Appalachia. It includes fiction, poetry, and nonfiction by dozens of writers from or adopted by our region. The publishers at University Press of Kentucky write that the collection shows... The nuances and contradictions that place Appalachia at the heart of American history. A more complete picture of Appalachia emerges, a landscape of contrasting visions and possibilities. Writers Wendell Berry, Bell Hooks, Silas House, Barbara Kingsolver, and Frank X. Walker are all included in the book, as well as fiction writer Anne Pancake. We asked her to read an excerpt from her novel, Strange as This Weather Has Been. The plot features a family in southern West Virginia who lives below a mine site. This excerpt is from the perspective of the mother in the family. I was already hearing a few things at the Dairy Queen, though. And in truth, I was already seeing it in the creek. I tried to fool myself about that, too. I said, well, maybe you just remember the water as clearer than it really was. Memory does that kind of thing. But nothing could cover that day in August. Corey and Tommy brought back two of those big margarine tubs full of rotting crawdads. Or the afternoon a week later, when I looked out the back window and saw what Tommy had in his hands. I was rushing around getting ready for work and arguing with Jimmy Make at the same time when something caught my eye out a window I was passing. Tommy, standing in the creek in nothing but a pair of shorts, mud smeared over his belly, and studying something he held in each hand. I stopped and squinted. It was full-size dead fish that he held. Drop him, I heard myself scream. His face snapped up towards the window in surprise, and he did, the fish sliding out of his hands. Then I was rushing out. I was jerking him up over the bank to the outside spigot, and then I was scrubbing his hands. Bant, I heard me holler, get me some soap. Then Bant was there, handing me the dishwashing stuff off the sink and saying, What's wrong, Mom? They're just dead fish. I couldn't help telling my work friend Rondell about it as soon as I clocked in. She was busy refilling the soft-serve machine on her tippy-toes, hefting the sloppy mixed bag over the machine's mouth. Well, my God, my God, uh-uh-uh, uh-uh-uh. I wasn't real sure how close Rondell was even listening. Then all of a sudden, there came a voice right behind me. Poisons in the runoff got him. I wheeled around, and here of all people, it was Dunky talking. This girl no more than 19 came from farther than anybody else to work, from clear over in Boone County. And I tried to be friendly with her at the beginning, but Dunky always acted real nervous, so I gave up. Now I looked at her behind her big purplish glasses and said, What poisons? Mercury. Dunky took one finger and pushed her glasses back up her nose. Lead, arsenic, cadmium, copper, selenium, chromium, nickel. She stopped and swallowed. Got this look on her face like she just realized we might think she was showing off and that's not what she meant at all. At least that's what's in the slurry, she said kind of apologetically. Do you know what's over top you all? 
Again, that was award-winning fiction writer Anne Pancake reading from her novel, Strange as This Weather Has Been. Pancake grew up in West Virginia, but then left and lived for many years in the Northwest. She recently returned home and now teaches at West Virginia University. The next writer we'll hear is from a part of Appalachia we don't often hear much about on our show, a rural mountainous area of New York. Of course, up there they call it Appalachia, but we can forgive them for that because it is a different part of Appalachia, though we do share a few similarities. In addition to being a writer, Shannon Hayes is also a farmer. In her 2010 book, Radical Homemakers, she writes about her childhood growing up in the northern Appalachian Mountains and about her decision to create a life for herself outside of a 9-to-5 job by doing what her ancestors did, raising her own food and making a living through agriculture. Here's Hayes reading an excerpt from her book. My mother's generation fought for the right to go to work to achieve personal fulfillment through professional accomplishments. As a result of the culture that generation sparked, I charged through high school and college at full throttle, ravenously ambitious, eager to start my own career as soon as possible. At age 16, I attended high school during the day and I took college courses at night. My first college paper was about the psychological benefits of enrolling children in daycare, full time. I completed college before I was of legal drinking age, spent a year working overseas, another year administering a housing rehabilitation program for flood victims, then enrolled in Cornell University and had a PhD by the time I was 27. I was ready to conquer the world in a big way. My ambition was probably fueled by the fact that my primary and secondary schooling took place in a town on the rural suburban fringe in Cobleskill, New York, which has the distinction of being the only town in our county with not one, but two exits along the newly built interstate. It seemed Cobleskill students were cultivated to gaze longingly at those exit ramps, to dream of the day they would lead us away from an otherwise backward rural county. The trouble was, in my heart, I never wanted to leave home. My family's farm was just barely inside the district lines. We didn't actually live in Cobleskill, but in the next town over, with no interstate to be seen. West Fulton is far above the valley floor, at the northern edge of the Appalachian mountain chain, and the Appalachian agrarian culture was still very much alive throughout my childhood. During the week, I worked to get straight A's in town. But on the weekends and summers, I worked in the hills on a neighboring farm, where the inhabitants lived very well, on only a few thousand dollars per year. Ruth, the farm matron, kept chickens and a garden. She put up her vegetables for the winter, sewed her clothes, and made pies and jams from berries picked on the field edges. Sanford, her octogenarian boarder, took care of the beef herd that supplied their winter meat and kept the house, outbuildings, tractor, and car in good repair. I loved every minute I spent with them, repairing fences, shoveling manure, cutting their grass, making hay, stacking firewood, raking leaves, and, most especially, collecting my wages, which came in the form of midday feasts. I loved being on my family farm as well. I took great joy in spending time with my folks, spent endless days roaming the hills, and countless summer nights sleeping out under the stars. Nevertheless, I faithfully adhered to my career track. 
But in an effort to find a path back to my own community, I studied subjects that I thought would help me get a job there, would make me an asset to the local agricultural college or county government, rural sociology, sustainable agriculture, community and rural development, adult and extension education. So committed was I to finding a way home that my husband Bob and I took out a mortgage and bought a small cabin on 15 acres even deeper into the hills, just seven miles from the family farm. Two weeks later, he was fired from work. I never even got a job interview. The writing seemed to be on the wall. Sell the house, find jobs someplace else, leave town. That's Shannon Hayes reading from her book, Radical Homemakers, Reclaiming Domesticity from a Consumer Culture. Hayes is one of dozens of writers featured in a new anthology of Appalachian literature called Writing Appalachia. In our next segment, we hear from another writer, Jordan Farmer, who wrote a novel called Poison Flood. The book is set in West Virginia, and in the background, the characters are coping with the effects of a water crisis, an actual event that took place in 2014. The story is about a musician's struggle for recognition and to create in a world that doesn't necessarily accept people that look like him. The main character lives with a disability, or as the author describes it, a non-traditional body. Jordan Farmer chatted with our associate producer, Eric Douglas, about his book. What do you hope your readers for Poison Flood take away from the book? Well, I think, first of all, I just want them to be entertained, of course. I think that any any art that doesn't um, entertain you or connect with you on some kind of emotional level, if it's all just moral, uh, then I think it, it fails the test of what art should do. So at first, I want them to be entertained and engaged and to have some kind of emotional reaction to the characters where they, you know, love them or hate them or feel sympathetic towards them and have some kind of um, empathetic response, hopefully. Your your character, Hollis, um, he was interesting, too. And uh, he was he, he's a, 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 obviously a tremendously talented musician, but he also had a has a pretty significant disability that he's he's dealing with. Uh, why did you why did you decide to, to throw that into the mix? Well, I, I wanted to write a story with where somebody a narrator or a protagonist had what I would refer to as an unconventional body. I kind of have one myself. I have a uh, bone disorder that's stunted my overall growth. So I'm, I'm about five foot tall. And when I was younger and was really interested in literature and books, I was never finding characters who had these kind of um, different physical bodies or uh, were physically different in some way. And if I did find a story about them, it was always a story that was entirely concerned with the struggle of being physically different. It was never moments of them succeeding in business or love or making art or something else. It was always just focused on the, the body itself. Hollis deals with the stressful events in his life. He begins composing music in his head and then literally has to get a guitar and, and compose music to help himself calm down. What, What's the roots behind that? Are you a musician yourself? No, I'm, I'm not a musician myself. I play a little bit of uh, a bad punk rock and sort of cowboy chord country guitar, um, but I wouldn't call myself a musician. Being a creative guy growing up in a small town without a writer group or, or 
people who were interested in the same kind of art forms I was. A lot of my friends were musicians. And I think I was deeply influenced by, you know, the kind of music I grew up around. My, you know, my grandfather giving me Johnny Cash records and stuff to listen to when I was younger. So I, I wanted to write about the creative process, but I wasn't necessarily interested in the idea of writing about writing. Those kind of books don't um, always interest me. And I thought that um, I like music and I like the performative aspect of music. Is your next book also set in West Virginia? Is that something you plan to continue or are you, are you um, moving elsewhere with the next one? I've set this one, The Poison Flood, and uh, the next manuscript I'm working on. They take place in a um, sort of a fictional um, town in uh, West Virginia, much like, you know, Faulkner wrote about a, a fictional area of, of Mississippi. So it's, um, it's called Coopersville County, which is um, my way of being able to... Um, have a town similar to the, to the communities that I've grown up in, but also not have to have complete and total realism. Are you at all concerned about people saying, well, that's just some West Virginia story and, and not being interested because it is such a small kind of remote place? I, I had this idea when I was younger that there just wasn't a place for stories um, or, or, or a desire for stories um, from small towns or rural America or places where I'm from. Um, now I'm not so much sure that's true. Now I think that um, as long as you're telling an interesting, engaging story and the themes are something that anyone anywhere can understand, it's the sort of like daily struggles of life or the universal ideas of what it means to be a person, I think that people will engage with it regardless of the area. I think that um, your first concern is simply to tell an engaging story. That was Jordan Farmer speaking with Eric Douglas about his novel, Poison Flood. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're checking in with artists and writers from across our region. According to the U.S. Labor Department, one of the industries that the pandemic has impacted the most is arts and entertainment. Artists depend heavily on social events, something that's nearly impossible nowadays. Art shows and festivals have been canceled, galleries are closed. Artists have had to move their shops online. The business of being an artist has completely changed, at least for the time being. Today, we've heard from several artists from across Appalachia talk about how the past several months have been for them emotionally and economically. Painter Rachel Dennison shared these final thoughts about the future. And then for what the future looks like, that's hard to say. Um, My anxiety brain says, this is it, this is the future, and get used to it. But my heart is really hoping that one day and one day in the not too distant future, we get to go back and live quote unquote normal lives and that I'll get to be, you know, in the festivals and get to see people's initial reaction to my art because that's something I love and something that really kept me motivated. And uh, I don't have that now, you know, a Facebook like or an Instagram heart isn't isn't the same as someone's you know first facial expression when seeing your work so I just have to hope that things will get better 
Thanks, Rachel, for letting us know how you're adapting. Caitlin Tan helped record that story along with the other artists we've heard from in today's show. One day more, one day more. People let me tell you. For our final story, we'd like to take a moment to remember Elaine Perkey, one of West Virginia's most powerful social activists and musicians. People close to her recall that she didn't need a microphone to perform. Her voice was so strong. Elaine Perkey passed away earlier this month from COVID-19. Caitlin Tan brings us this remembrance. In southern West Virginia. Elaine Perkey grew up a coal miner's daughter in the mountains of Lincoln County. She was a coal miner's wife, a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. But much of her life was spent as a musician activist, taking part in writing songs for many of the major union strikes over the past 50 years. There's something evil going on. They're tearing up our mountains. Perky was internationally known. One of her performances was featured in a PBS documentary, and she played in the 2003 Smithsonian Folklife Festival. And she's included in a folklife collection in the Library of Congress. But all her inspiration came from the Mountain State. I mean, she's hardcore at Southern West Virginia. That's Rick Wilson. He's a native West Virginian who works with the American Friends Service Committee a Quaker social justice group. West Virginians are almost tribal in some ways. You know, there's just like this real visceral connection to place. And I'd have to say it wasn't just a connection to place, but it was a connection of solidarity, sympathy for the poor and the disadvantaged. Wilson says Perky learned to play guitar and sing from her family. Legend has it that as a young girl, her father would put her on top of a rock to sing to whoever happened to walk by, Wilson says. You didn't want to hear Elaine sing in a small room because she could just blow you away. We'll protect our homes, our mountains. You can do the same or you better stay away. Wilson and Perky were friends for over 30 years, first meeting at a coal worker strike and later bonding over their love of music. Her song, One Day More, is about the 1990-92 Ravenswood lockout, where nearly 2,000 United Steelworkers Union members demanded safer working conditions. It became one of her most famous songs, featuring in the 2006 Smithsonian Folkways Recordings album, Classic Labor Songs. Here's Perky playing the song at a West Virginia Folklife Program event in Kimball in 2017. It's about union workers outlasting companies by one day to get their demands met. Perky also focused much of her time and songs on issues like clean water, police brutality, and teacher strikes. But also lighter things, like teaching Appalachian folk songs for kids at the Big Ugly Community Center, and she was an active member in the Leeds Church of Christ in Lincoln County. Wilson says she was absorbed by her passions and had a random yet charismatic sense of humor. We used to have a joke that her brain worked like 
an old-fashioned car with an AM radio driving on curvy mountain roads at night, and you never knew what station she was going to pick up. Jeff Bosley was another friend of Perky's. He's a recording event production engineer based in Huntington. He met her through the music industry 10 years ago and describes her as fire and vinegar. She never stopped. And, and you know, for, for us to be in position here talking about Elaine being stopped, it's just, it, it doesn't really compute at this point. It just doesn't. She was like an elemental force of nature. Bosley recorded Perky singing the old Hazel Dickens song, Fire in the Hole, at the opening of the Mine Wars Museum in Maitwan in 2015. Tell it in the country, tell it in the town. Miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillar, load another ton, or lift another finger till a union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. I think Elaine was really singing about what she felt, what her thoughts were, and what her experiences were. It's just so sincere and comes straight from the heart. Perky's friend Rick Wilson says she truly believed in West Virginia and its ability to persevere, much like her song says in One Day More. I think Elaine's advice to us in these days, which are really dark in more ways than one, would be to hold out one day more. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Elaine Perkey died on September 2nd of COVID-19. She was 71 years old. If you have a loved one who passed away from COVID and you'd like us to remember them, reach out at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Union for the ones that leave behind. Stand up, boys, let the bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. Fire in our hearts and fire in our souls, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. No, there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. Wow, what a voice. Elaine Perky might not be here physically, but I'm so glad that we still have her inspiring songs to share with you. COVID has changed our lives and might have taken Elaine Perkey and some other really amazing people, but their legacy lives on because we still have their inspiring music, books, or art. And as this pandemic continues and drags out, maybe all we can do is take things one day at a time. Or as Elaine would say, just one day more. For me, creating art can be therapeutic. Music really helps me get through tough times. And you know, maybe some of their deaths won't be in vain. Maybe by sharing their stories and going back and listening to their voices, we're helping preserve their memories. I'm proud that we're able to share them with you. We want to be there for you, our listeners. So we hope the gifts of Appalachia's artists help you get through some challenging times as well. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the West Virginia Public Broadcasting Southern Coalfields Reporting Project, which is supported by a grant from the National Coal Heritage Area Authority. Special thanks to the West Virginia Folklife Program at the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Our music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps and Elaine Perky. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jessica Lilly. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.